Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. I was out 17. Things were going uh, pretty well for me overall. I uh, was living in California with uh, my brother. I was trying to get California residency. And I flipped my car when I came home from a little bit of a break. And so, you know, here I am kind of cruising along. Things are going pretty well for me. I was in New Jersey, so I was probably like, you know, jamming to some Bon Jovi or something like that. And, uh, and, and here I am kind of like, you know, just loving life and doing the thing. And, and all of a sudden, I'm trying to stick the landing on a, on a triple-double as my car rattles and scrapes and bangs and twists and flips. And, and it ends up like lanes, three lanes over and hundreds of feet down the road from where I actually had slid off the road. So all of a sudden, everything is looking down. Car is wrecked. My dad's freaking out. I'm rattled beyond belief. The, you know, the veil of invincibility is starting to, to, to peel back a little bit. There I am, heading up into the right, thinking all's good. And then in just a moment, blink of an eye, not so much. And I think, of course, we experience this all the time in life. And I share enough of your stories, and I hear enough of your stories, that I often see this as the reality, right? Life is simply like this. It's up and to the right, and, and then, it's, then it's down, sudden and unexpectedly many times. And what I have noticed over the years in my own heart and in many of your stories is that when life is going kind of like that, our spiritual lives track with it. They go up, and then they plummet, and they go up, and then they go down, and then we feel the pressure, and we move away from God, and then we go up, and then down again. It doesn't seem like the way it ought to be. I want to coin a phrase here, spiritual angulation, angulation. So here's how I'm kind of defining this idea. It is the often rapid and unexpected angulation of your life's trajectory that negatively impacts your spiritual life. It's the creation of angles, ups and downs, that happen in the spirit world or in your spiritual experience based on what's going on in normal life. Spiritual angulation. This isn't like, you know, I'm not trying to like create some sort of... Uh, bizarro version of Christian superstition or mysticism or anything like that. You know, bad things come in threes. 
you know, or that's like kind of one of the things I grew up with, right? And so, you know, it's some sort of karmic balance in the universe, you know, you got to wait for the other shoe to drop. I'm not talking about anything like that. It's a simple reality that the Christian life is not always up and to the right. That our experience of Christ, our experience of walking with him is often very difficult and very challenging. We've all experienced it. We know it to be the case. And here we are studying, uh, we're in this series, we call it On the Move, and we're studying the life of Christ. And we're watching how he, he just is blasting through this gospel. And he's doing all of this amazing stuff. And he's taking new ground for the kingdom. And he's fighting against the forces of darkness. And he's, he's coaching, he's training, he's teaching his disciples. And all of this amazing stuff is happening. And as soon as it does, something bad happens. It doesn't work out the way that we hoped it would or thought it might. It's simply the reality, that some sort of spiritual angulation. And when we watch the way Jesus responds to it, it helps us see the kinds of tools that we can also employ when struggling against this very real reality. So we're going to be looking in the Gospels. We're going to be studying Mark chapter 6 today. We're kind of going through this again. I mentioned really a verse by verse, kind of chapter by chapter study of the Gospel of Mark. And what we're seeing here is what is how Jesus is sort of dealing with these very natural but exceptionally disruptive patterns of ups and downs, right? So he's kind of going through this, the background to what we're going through right now is that Jesus is kind of going through some great stuff, right? We've just watched through all the way through chapter 5 where he's doing these amazing things, right? The, the story starts and all of a sudden Jesus is just sort of skyrocketing up in this trajectory, right? And there's, there's like demons being cast out and all of a sudden Jesus is being accused of being in league with the demons, and all of a sudden, things start going down, right? He's, he's got all of this incredible power. And, and you're looking at it, and you're like, this is amazing. He's got power over everything, even the, even the natural elements. And all of the people in power are rejecting him. And, and down, it, down it goes. See, over and over, we see that sort of pattern. And that's what we've, we've sort of picked up. His, his trajectory isn't simply up and to the right, the ministry keeps getting all of these setbacks. What is Jesus going to do? So we're in Matthew 6, starting in verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in their synagogue. And many who heard him were, let's say it together, they were what? Amazed, which is what you would expect. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He cannot do any miracles there except lay the ha his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. 
So it says at the very beginning there, verse 1, he left there. And remember, it's coming off of this incredible series of miracles. It was Jairus' daughter. It was the raising of the, of the dead girl. It was the sandwiched in there was the story of the woman who had the issue of blood and, and these, these incredible things going on. And then he gets to his hometown and, you know, he's coming home. Like, this, is, this should be a ticker tape parade. Like, the, 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 our boy's coming back and he's been doing all these amazing things and he should be just celebrated. And then he gets this honor of being invited by the synagogue leader to actually teach on the Sabbath in the synagogue. So all of this is looking up and to the right. We're going to see a great breakthrough. And the people there were amazed. But, of course, that's not where things go. The questions start coming. Where? What isn't, aren't. And we start to get a sense that something bad is brewing. Now, when they go through these questions, you know, we've got to kind of just think through them a little bit. Because, like, when they talk about him being the carpenter, sometimes people take that to be kind of a slam. Like, oh, he's just the carpenter. That's not really what's going on. It's more in a, in a society where you're sort of born into your status. We don't really experience that here. We kind of have this all like everyone can kind of move above their place in life. And that's not what many cultures, most cultures throughout history and the world have really taught or believed. The, the idea here is he's one of us, not that he's below us. Because to be a carpenter, he's actually a handyman or really a, a construction worker. Right? And so he might work with wood, he might work with stone. We don't really know. The word is a little bit more ambiguous than that. But he's, you know, he's a, a solid, blue-collar, respected member of the community. This, wouldn't, you know, this wasn't a dig on him. It's just saying he's not a, he's not a, he's not a priest. He's not a rabbi. You know, he's not educated in these things. He's just one of us. And who is he trying to put himself above us? It mentions here that he is Mary's son. And a lot of people read this and they go, oh, this must be a dig at how kind of things got started, right? He's not Joseph's son. He's Mary's son because, you know, the scandal of the whole, like, virgin birth thing and really the virgin birth. But, and maybe that is going in here. Maybe there's a little bit of that. It, it's more likely that he's called Mary's son because Joseph has been gone so long. More than likely he died uh, shortly after all the kids were born. And uh, which obviously is a lot of, of kids. You saw that. He's got like the brothers, at least two sisters. So what is that? He's at least one of seven. And so he's a, he's a good old Irish family. Because, um, you know, as a Kelly, we appreciate these things. And, and so you're, you're looking at this. And by the way, I used to talk to the Monsignor over at St. Aidan's. And I would always try to point out how productive Mary and Joseph were after Jesus was born. He did not like that conversation. He would, he would blush. This is my senior McDonald before. It was, it was a great time. But uh, it was fun to watch because, of course, they, they can't handle these kinds of things because, you know, this doesn't really uh, make sense any into, in their world of theology. But uh, he did have brothers, and he had at least two sisters uh, because there's the plural there. Um, and, of course, what we see going on is they and everyone else in his hometown took offense Verse 3, the end of verse 3, they took offense. And how hurtful this must have been for him. Right? These weren't just his people, like the Israelite people. These were his people. This was his clan. These were the people that he grew up with, that he knew, that he, he probably had worked in most of their homes. They knew him. And that familiarity led them to reject what he was doing, how hurtful this must have been to him. If any group of people would have known who he was and, and his insight into, into God and his devotion 
to the faith. It should have been these people, but his, his very, I mean, his cousins would have been in that mix and maybe nieces, nephews and family members. Like this was a flat out rejection of the people who should have your back. And they don't. I remember when uh, my grandfather um, found out that I was uh, not going to go into architecture or business. That was my undergraduate. I was studying those things and he found out I was going to go into ministry. He was not happy. He was not happy. That was not a cool thing in my family to be pursuing, you know, you know that windmill. And, uh, and so uh, my, my, uh, a few, quite a few of my family weren't really big on it. My grandfather in particular didn't hold back. And uh, it was super hurtful. When he found out that I was going into ministry and not in the Catholic church, that was crazy for him. He was just like, I don't even understand. Like, you're going into ministry and you're actually now going to go to hell. Like, it was like a terrible, he hadn't gone to church in like 20 years. But it didn't matter because like, you know, he was really upset. He was really hurt by this. And of course, what, I was trying to deflect it with humor. And so I was married at the time. And, you know, I'm still married, actually. I'm not, I was not married. I'm still married to the same woman. She's right over there, actually. And so she was there and I said, Grandpa, but look. I couldn't be a Catholic priest. Just, would you give that up? No. And so I was trying to like convince him that there was a rationale to it and all this. But, you know, it hurt. It hurt not to have the support of your family. And some of you have felt this as well, right? You know, as you've sort of moved into the faith and your, your life starts looking different and you start acting different and your values start to shift, your family, your friends, the people that ought to have your back often don't. Jesus knew that pain. He experienced that kind of hurt because the people were offended. And I think it's helpful for us to stop and just ask for a moment, what is it about Jesus that offends you? Right? There's something. There's probably many of things over the years that have offended you about Jesus. And you're like, no, 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 nothing offends me. You know, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm at church. But then, then you get into the scriptures and you find out that he says things like he's the only way. And you're like, ooh, that one hurts, because I know lots of people who aren't followers of Christ, and I don't really want to think that Jesus is the only way. Or you start, to, you start to hear things about how we ought to live our lives, who we can date, who we can marry, how we're to live sexually. Ugh. That's a little bit offensive, Jesus. We start talking about what it means to live in this world sacrificially, to break down selfishness, in our hearts and to be selfless in giving to others. Ow, that hurts. So what is it about Jesus that offends you such that you want to keep him at arm's length? You want to keep him a little bit distant. And then it tells us here in verse 6, he was amazed at their lack of faith. Isn't that interesting? He's only amazed a couple times, and this is one of the times in all the Gospels where Jesus is amazed. He just can't understand it. So much so that there are few miracles done there, which is a startling verse. If you kind of think through it and you see where we've been at in the rest of the Gospel here, that's a startling thing. This is the guy that commands the waves and the wind. He has fought the powers of darkness and cast out demons. We had the whole pigs thing. I mean, we've seen all of these incredible, powerful moments. And all of a sudden, we're reading that he can't perform miracles there because of their lack of faith. And our tendency is to take that and go, well, obviously a lack of faith equals less power for Jesus. Which, of course, can't be what this means. It's even a little bit ironic 
after you get over the shock of that statement, because as you're reading it, you suddenly see he's like, he can only heal a few people. I think that would be pretty spectacular if like Jesus came here today and just healed a few people. I feel like that would be enough for us to go, like that's absolutely incredible. He only could heal a few people because he would have healed so many more. He would have done even greater things had the people had faith. But, but this can lead us to a very dangerous conclusion if we're not careful, if we're not reading the rest of the context of Scripture, which is that, that somehow this whole thing of his power is related to our faith, right? He's been kind of on the move. He's been jamming through all of these things. And it almost sounds like now that he is able to do his stuff because of our faith. This is a risky, risky position, right? Because you, you, you know what that leads us to. It leads us to being, the, the, like, remember Elf, right? And so you remember when there, there was a lack of faith in Santa. No one really believed in him anymore, and so the sleigh wouldn't really ride, so they had to strap rockets onto the back of it. And then the only way, because the rockets failed at the end, I hope I'm, this isn't a spoiler alert. Anyway, so at the end, when all of a sudden he can't, and the people start singing, and because now they're praising, and they're, they're now you know, nearly worship, but they're now they have faith, and suddenly the sleigh magically takes off, and that's kind of like God. You know, like Jesus, he's, as long as we have faith, he has power, which of course means it puts him under us. It puts his authority and his power subject to our strength. He's only as strong as we are. And you can see how absolutely ludicrous this, this would be. So when we get to this idea, what could it possibly mean? I think what happens here is that Jesus will only do what is going to what he's going to do when we exercise trust in him to do it. It can't be that his power is gone because nobody was looking for the resurrection. Nobody was expecting it. Nobody was even, it wasn't even on there. It's not like they all had to gather up and say, all right, everybody, let's join hands, pray real hard, and if we muster up enough faith, Jesus will come back from the dead. Most didn't even want that to happen. And yet, he still had resurrection power. But you see, if you refuse to bring your heartache to him, if you refuse to bring your brokenness to him, if you refuse to bring your sickness to him, then he will let you stay there. See, he cannot do many because many didn't come. They refused. He went around, it says at the very end there, he says, then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. I think here we get to see a little bit about who his true family really is. The whole narrative starts with him and the disciples. He comes to his hometown, then he leaves with his disciples. See, that's who his true family really is. And in the midst of it, we see him pressing on, even after this significant defeat, which I think is just so important for us to remember. You know, Cheryl and I, we, we, our family, we, us and our family, we've been through kind of a you know, a tough season, right? And so ministry was going amazing. This is last year and, and we we're excited and things going here at Viscardi and the church is, is showing these progress and things are kind of up and to the right. And so we're like, yeah, this is amazing. And then, you know, we had the house fire and it's like, 
right? And then all of a sudden we start like making the plans and we're like, oh, this is going to be amazing. We're going to rebuild. It'll all be new. We'll make some changes. It's kind of up into the right. And then the insurance company, which is pretty much always, by the way, you know, because then it's like, you know, later on we're like, oh, we got a permit. Yay. Everything is up. Insurance company. It doesn't really matter what goes on. Hi, right, we're picking new floors. Insurance company. But like, you know, it's kind of these rhythms that, that happen. And you know what this is like, right? So you've just, you got great news, you had the, you saved the money, you got the cruise, and you're going on this great vacation, and then all of a sudden, coronavirus. <laughs> you know, which isn't really bad to be quarantined on a cruise ship for 14 days. Anyway, it's just, but you see, you know the point, right? And all of a sudden, you got extra money to invest, and you're like, I'm so excited, I'm going to invest, I'm going to get in the market, and all of a sudden, everything goes down, and you're just like, oh, this is no good. My kid, he got into a great college, and look, the college bills. Like, this is, you know, this is the world we live in. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like rain on your wedding day. Or like a fly in your Chardonnay. That's, that's so catchy. Um, you know, but there's like this, there, there is this absolute spiritual angulation. And Jesus presses on. He doesn't let the punch in the gut that his family gave him, that his friends and his neighbors gave him, to stop him from pressing forward. In fact, we get into this next section, and he's just, he's talking about a radical expansion of his ministry. Take a look in verse 7. It says, calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. This is a really interesting passage because we, we see here there's a lot of symbolism wrapped up in here. At first you might look at this and go, ah, oh, you know, this is neat. He's just sending the guys out to do kind of some more work. But that's not really what's going on because it's laced with symbolism from the Old Testament. Twelve, it's the twelve tribes of Israel. This is the rebirth of the people, of the nation of Israel. They're being re-sent on their mission. That's why it's twelve. That's why there are all these Jewish men because they're representative of the patriarchs. That's who they're sending back out into this world, and they're bringing a message of the new kingdom of God, not the old nation of Israel. We also see the kind of things that they're bringing comes right out of Exodus 12, which was the story of the Exodus. It's as if Jesus is promising them a new Exodus. So someone greater than Moses is now here. He's bringing a new exodus from slavery and freedom for his people. It's, it has all of this. It's just layered upon layer. And so, of course, you can't take this as kind of how to do missions today because this was for a unique people at a unique time. But there is a great deal that we actually can learn because he tells us here, Obviously, verse after he tells us about the 12, he says he began to send them out. And this sending out is a common theme now that we're going to see throughout the Gospels, all the way through the book of Acts and right into the epistles. He's sending his people on mission. And that's so important for us to remember because this whole thing about Christianity, it isn't simply about us, 
right? We come here, we come on a Sunday, we gather together. Trevor was just talking about it with, with, with uh, you know, our mission statement. This isn't about simply us coming to gather and do our thing. We are here for mission. We are here to go out. And Jesus, despite whatever sort of struggles, whatever sort of ups and downs he was experiencing, kept pressing on. You know the early Christians, when they were faced with plague in the Roman Empire, they stayed to heal the sick. Sociologists tell us that it's one of the reasons that Christianity spread so rapidly throughout the empire because the Christians loved deeply and sacrificially in the midst of crisis. Powerful stories and Jesus is sending them out. He's saying this is a mission. And he, I love this because he tells them, you know, you're not going to take anything. You got to trust in all of this in Christ um, and in God's provision and all that. But look at verse 12. It says, they went out. And they preached that people should repent. They drove out demons and they anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. That is our call today. When John the Baptist came, he said, repent. When Jesus crashes on the scene, first message he gives is repent. He sends the 12 out and by extension us. And their message was repent. And he sends us out on mission to tell the world that repentance is available. And you know when I say that, at first, when I grew up, it was kind of like a turn or burn sort of religion, which, you know, you turn or you burn in hell. You know, and so this whole idea of repentance always had this negative connotation for me. And I think for many of us, repentance feels negative. It feels like, oh, you asked me to repent, you know, because I'm a sinner, you know, and then we have all of this criticism about this sort of an attitude, and it feels like quite the downer. But if you invest yourselves in the lives of people who are far from God, you'll come very quickly to see that repentance is a gift. What we're offering them isn't simply this, you know, this way out of hell, the turn or burn mentality. What we're offering them is the hope and the promise of a new life. You know how many of your, your friends who are who are far from God, would love that opportunity? An opportunity to actually overcome the things that bother themselves the most about themselves, the, the things that are breaking down their marriages and are hurting their relationships with their kids and are making them live purposeless, purposeless lives, pursuing you know, wealth that isn't going to matter? And you offer them a way to turn from those things and towards something that matters. It is a gift you are offering. This is what we do. You, as a follower of Christ, you have been called to ask people to repent. To turn away from false gods that will give them no hope and to embrace the God of the scriptures who gave Christ on their behalf. This is an incredible, hopeful promise. And it ought to be always on our lips. But he also tells them they're going to kill and cast out demons, which, of course, in our day and age, there is a fight against the power of darkness. And Christians, for the last 2,000 years, have led the fight against darkness. Wherever we found it, we fought it. And we're to do the same today. 
tells us to bring healing. That's actually one of the final promises in the book of Revelation, that, there we, that we will be the source of healing for the world. The divisions and the arguments and the hatreds, and the racism and all of the, the things that we read about every single day. We are called to live differently and bring healing into those. You see, you want to know what your mission is in life. You want to know what, the, what Jesus is asking you to embrace fully and to press into no matter what life throws at you. That's what it is. That's our mission. Call people to repentance and offer them the hope that comes as we fight against the power of darkness in our day and age. Something curious takes place here. If you notice at the end, it, kind of the, it says they went out and healed him. And then the story starts in verse 14 with a different narrative. So it's as if we don't ever find out what really took place with the disciples. And so you, go, you jump over to verse 30 and you see the apostles gather around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. So this is something Mark does. We saw it last week as well. He starts a story, then he inserts a story, and then he ends the first story. It's like the third or fourth time we've actually seen it. And it's a narrative trick that he uses because he wants you to interpret the broader story with the one that's sandwiched in it. Trevor showed us that last week. It's the same exact thing here. He's, he wants you to interpret it. So what happens next? And I'm not going to have read it. It's a very depressing story. You guys can read it uh, when you get home. But here's the gist of it. The apostles are sent out on this incredible mission. Then they come back and they're going to tell all these amazing stories of demons responding to them and healings that, that they were able to perform and people who have repented and come to follow Messiah. And there's going to be all of this awesome up and to the right kind of stuff. And so you're looking at it and you're like, this is amazing. The ministry is going forward. The mission is expanding. The new Israel has been born. A new exodus is underway. But everything that happens between the sending and their return is all down. John the Baptist is going to get killed. And he's going to get killed in one of the most despicable and vile displays of selfishness and deceit and adultery and just absolute horrific scene. John the Baptist, a cousin of Jesus, friend, a common voice for the mission, one of the great voices calling the people to repentance, and now his head is on a platter, killed because of one erotic dance. It's as if Mark is saying, listen, the mission is amazing. Jesus is telling us the mission is amazing. You've been called to do these incredible things and the spirit will be in you and the Christian journey will be filled with all of this and it will not come without great cost and sacrifice. There will be great risk and there will be great heartache and there has never been the promise of an easy journey as we're battling against the forces of darkness. So often people get sidelined in the Christian faith because things get difficult. We saw it in the parable of the soils and now we're seeing it in real life and Jesus is saying, no, we've got to trust in the Christ. We have to trust in the Christ because you know, he himself did this thing for us. 
He experienced the destruction of the cross, the disintegration of his physical life, the separation from the Father. He endured a brutal, humiliating death because that was part of the mission God had sent him on. And what was his mission? It was to save you from that kind of separation from the Father, to save me. And Jesus says, it does not matter what I endure. It doesn't matter what sort of angulation is thrown at me. I will endure and press forward with the mission. And he's saying, you can trust me. You can trust me with your heartache and you can trust me with your struggles and you can trust because I know he has been there. He's experienced it and so much more. And he says, listen, seek his power. You will not be able to experience his power if you don't bring your needs to him. If you don't trust him enough, if you're not saying, Jesus, here is my heartache, here is my pain, here is my sin. If you're not willing to expose that to him, if you're not willing to say, look, here's my brokenness, then you will not experience his healing. If you never put yourself in a position where you need an infusion of his power, you won't get it. Because of your lack of faith, you will experience a lack of his power. And he says, listen, it does not matter what happens. Do the work. The stakes are incredibly high. And yes, you're going to lose some battles. That's a promise. You will absolutely lose some battles, but you cannot lose the war. The war was already won. The death of Christ, the power of the resurrection, the battle might overwhelm you. And you know, you might not make it through. John the Baptist certainly didn't. We know later the disciples didn't, as they were almost all martyred. But the war will be won. Every single soul that enters the kingdom of God is ground that will never be given back. Never. It will never be given back, no matter what is thrown at you. We do the work. You know, so many folks, they just, you're so overwhelmed with life and the problems and the, the ups and the downs. And you just check out of doing the work that God has called you to do. You check out of serving. You know, you decide, I'm not going to do it. I'm too busy. I'm too overwhelmed. I'm too this. And Jesus is like, press on and do the work. Trust in the power of Christ. And fulfill your call. I'm going to ask that the band would come up, lead us in a closing worship song. And as they do, I'm going to ask that you would stand as we pray. Lord, we look into your word and we see these incredibly hopeful stories and then laced throughout them are these stories of heartache and pain. We see your own son bewildered at our lack of faith. We see how his own heart was broken and crushed through rejection, denial, distrust, accusations, and ultimately, Lord, the cross. 
Father, what we want is the power of Christ in us. May we yield to it more fully and completely. Lord, may we have even small faith that you meet with a great outpouring of your power. We want it, Lord, more and more as we ask that you would do it, meeting us even here in these moments of worship as we gather together. We know you're here in our midst. We sing a song here, Lord, to lay our heart bare before you. Meet, meet us right now here in the midst. Make this song our prayer to you. We ask that you answer it. In Christ's name.